I cannot resist a museum. At this point in my life, I think it is safe to say that I'm basically magnetically drawn to them. Anywhere I go, whether it be a small town or a park, anywhere in the country, if I see a museum, I am going inside, much to the chagrin of my fellow travelers who are themselves dragged within. Which is why I was very excited when I discovered a museum in the heart of Lettuce Lake Park in Tampa. The Lettuce Lake Park Visitor Center has a collection of native plants growing in a small garden outside, flowering and winding up structures in a beautiful collection. We were the only people within the Visitor Center that day, so we were some of the only people to discover the treasures hidden within. Set amongst a collection of old photographs, a little glass case details the origins of Lettuce Lake, where I was searching for skunk ape in June. The Hillsboro River became a haven for cypress trees thousands of years ago. Cypress, with their unusual knee roots that stick out of the ground like small soldiers around a central trunk, are everywhere in Lettuce Lake and were even more prolific before colonization swept through the state. Cypress is a magnificently durable tree, not just in the ground, but even when it's cut down for lumber. It is resistant to rot, it is not attractive to termites, and the actual process of turning the tree into blocks of woods was extremely easy, so naturally, it was extremely attractive to the lumber industry. The Hillsborough River became the home of cypress harvesting to an extreme degree. Men would arrive to the trees with huge saws that they would crank through the trunk in two-man teams. Once the tree was felled, they'd toss it on the water and float it down the river to a railroad bridge, where the logs were then lifted from the water and sent to a mill. Some of the trees that were thousands of years old still remain, but many of them were chopped down. Because of this, many of the trees along the Hillsborough River are not tremendously old. Quote, most of the cypress trees within the Hillsborough are less than 100 years in age. End quote. Within the museum, there are photographs of men with their arms spread wide, their fingertips touching, as they indicate on film precisely how large the cypress tree is. It is quite a charming sight despite it all. One photograph in the museum indicates that there is a cypress tree along the boardwalk that is, quote, 75 feet tall, 10 feet in diameter, and 800 to 1,000 years old." End quote. When we returned to walking the boardwalks around the lake, we were keeping an eye out for trees as big and as old as that one. But in the corner of the museum near the exit was an exhibit that really caught my eye. There was a glass case full of taxidermy on one side, which obviously garnered a lot of my attention, how could it not, but across the room was a glass case nearly full to the brim of simple wood-carved birds. The first one I spotted was a killdeer, a small brown and white bird that I had recently learned about after it had spent night after night this past fall screaming outside my window. Then there was a brown-crested flycatcher, a plover, a pair of bluebirds, Hanging from the ceiling as if in mid-flight was an American kestrel and a mallard with its distinctive green head. It's an unusual sight. Certainly there's many birds in this park, but why a collection of wood carvings? A sign in the window revealed the story. A couple based in Tampa, named Chuck and Mary Fairbanks, retired from their occupations and took up the hobby of creating these birds. Chuck was the woodworker who retired in 1982 and created each of the birds by hand. He'd been whittling ducks since he was a child, so this was a natural art piece for him to invest in in his later years. 
He also loved photography and used his extensive images of Florida birds to make his carvings as accurate as possible, alongside art made by John James Audubon, which they used to make the color correct. Mary Fairbanks, Chuck's wife, would then paint each of the carvings using the photos and the art using her lifetime of experience painting. Together, they brought these 39 bird statues to life. They visited Lettuce Lake many times in their last years, and after Chuck passed away in 2008, Mary looked around for a place to display their work, and Lettuce Lake won out over other Hillsborough area spots. They were installed a decade ago and have sat in comfort ever since, waiting to catch someone's eye and draw their attention to the color, the quality, and to the unique story of their creators. I can't help but fall in love. This museum has immortalized these folks, these artists that created this work for just the love of making art. They didn't know what was going to wind up in this museum. They made it because they wanted to, and then they donated them so that everyone could look at this piece together. They now live forever, not as historical figures, but as exhibits themselves, as part of Lettuce Lake's legacy. That is the joy of a museum, to feel like the thing you're seeing has been carefully put in glass to be brought right to you right now. And Florida is just filled with such museums. I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, a podcast about Florida by a Floridian. We're reaching the end of our season, and to celebrate the friendly spaces I've found myself in, I've decided to celebrate the museums of this season, and all museums in Florida. In my travels around the state for this season, I have been in several gorgeous museums, and unfortunately not had the chance to properly tell some of the stories contained within, so now is the chance to tell some of them to you, and to include some extra clips from our guests this season. Before we get into that, I want to tell you about our sponsor this week. This episode of Wait 5 Minutes is sponsored by A Trombo Creative. A Trombo Creative is owned and operated by my dear friend of over a decade, Annie. Annie has been designing and costuming professionally for six years and even did costumes for yours truly throughout my years in theater. Through close collaboration, cohesive design, and hands-on fittings, together you and Annie can create the perfect costume for your production, cosplay, special event, or photo shoot. She turns your ideas and inspirations into a wearable reality. You can check out more of her work on Instagram at atrombo.creative, and you can book your appointment at her website, atrombocreative.com. There are links to both of those in the episode description. Thank you to A Trombo Creative for sponsoring this episode and season of Wait 5 Minutes. Alright, on with the show. For the episode about the early years of Daytona racing, I had the pleasure of visiting the Motorsports Hall of Fame in Daytona, in the shadow of the Daytona racetrack. It is a beautiful museum, and I am looking forward to returning. It was colorful and full, and my hosts could not have been friendlier and more willing to explore the collection with me. One of the things that absolutely boggled my mind was the kind of creativity put into the creation of the cars themselves. My guest was Gary Chapels. He took me around the floor of the museum, chatting around the vehicles as we went. Gary kept pointing out details of the cars that had been manipulated or created or fabricated for a driver's need so they could feel like they were on the road to victory. Gary gives an example. A car lately bought off the, the lot, 
ripped everything out of it, threw some roll cages inside, uh, put in gauges that they wanted to use, and uh, just buttoned everything down and took out uh, anything glass and all that kind of stuff, the, you know, the, like the headlights and all that. I mean, I feel like there's this perception that in racing it's just like, oh, you get in the car and you race the car. Right. But looking at this and seeing, obviously you're saying it's stripped down, but there's specific things being monitored here. There's specific, you know, the set of the wheel, the set of the, the, the seat, the set of the, uh, the gear shift. I mean, all those things, that is so uh, concocted, right? It's, right? So, it's so organized and engineered in its specificity. I mean, yeah, there was a amazing. car we had, the car I was telling you about, that we had before. He had a chain running to, he had like a little trap door down here by the wheel well where he could pull a chain and he could see what kind of wear he was having on his on his right side tires. Really? Yeah, so that that's the kind of stuff they, they used to oh, do. So he, that's so they didn't James have the, Bond. Yeah, they didn't have the big, you know, they didn't have like the, the radio communication like right. they have now. Um, wow. You know, they used to sit out there on the side of the track with a chalkboard or whatever and have the numbers on there and tell them when to come in yeah. pit or whatever. Yeah. But that was a way he could see if his tires were bad. He could signal as he's driving by his his uh, pit crew out there. And be he like, could signal to him, hey, I need tires over here. Because he could see it. He could see it. So. That's amazing. Yeah. Wow. That level of control is just astounding. One figure who did this sort of control is Smokey Eunuch, an early NASCAR driver who won several races in his early years, especially in the 50s. He was quite the character and a notorious car modifier. They have a replica of one of his cars, a flat, low vehicle. It doesn't quite resemble the more rounded NASCAR cars of today. It's far more angular. Here's Gary. This car is actually a replica, but it's a very well-done replica. Smokey would do stuff like... Uh, run fuel lines through the roll cage so we can get some extra gas in the car. <laughs> <laughs> so we could really gun it if he needed to. So if, if he needed an extra couple laps yeah. and, and he's got it. There's a story. I don't know whether it's true or not. I don't know. He did something to his fuel cell and NASCAR caught it before their race. They confiscated the fuel cell and told him to go home and he had enough gas in the in the lines to drive it back to his shop out here on... <laughs> Beach sides. So. Hey, that's a good story, whether it's true or yeah. not. <laughs> so I mean, it's a myth. It's a legend, right? right? Yep. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but like you know, if you notice, like where the roof lump comes down here, see how yeah. it kind of curves up. Yeah. That gives them a little extra downforce on the back of the car to keep it wow. more stable. Just stuff like that. It was nothing major. I mean, that's but, science of but it. It's, the physics yeah. of that. I mean, that's amazing. But yeah, he, you know, to to think of that and to carve out the car to do that for him. <laughs> It's pretty neat stuff, and, there, and there's, and again, an unsubstantiated rumor. There's a rumor that he condensed his cars down to, like, 1920ths of the size that it was or something. He, wow. he, he just shrinked just, it down a little bit. Just that much. Yeah, yeah just to, Just so yeah. no one would notice, just a little yep. bit off. Yep. I mean, that's fantastic. Yeah, what a kinda, beautiful car. Yeah. Myth or not, it's that sort of story that drifts around so much of the vehicles in this museum. Each driver brought their own character to the vehicle they were driving. That was no more evident to me than in the Richard Petty car in this collection. If you were somehow unaware of who Richard Petty is, he is widely considered one of the greatest race car drivers of all time. Look him up. Just look at his face. He is so cool. His list of wins is staggeringly long, including seven wins here at the Daytona 500. But the vehicle in possession of the museum bears a unique signature of his cars. Okay, if you look on his backrest, yeah. his headrest, yeah. see how it's in a 
in a peace sign. That was kind of a petty deal for, for his cars. Really? So when the person who eventually bought this car saw that, he thinking, okay, this is very possibly a, a Richard Petty car, and he made a, apparently a pretty good deal to, to buy the car from the guy. He had a like a modified racing body on it. Mm-hmm. So he made a deal to buy the car dirt cheap and then got it authenticated by Petty that it actually was one of his cars wow. and then had Petty himself, his company, go through and just completely redo right it back to redo it back to 1972. Why so. a peace sign? Just liked it. Well, 60s and 70s, you know, he's got the <laughs> The Vietnam War going and all that sure, kind of stuff. Of course. Oh, I yeah. see. Oh, oh, that this was this was hippie years. Yep. Looking at more petty cars in my research, you can see peace signs everywhere, even in his steering wheel in one vehicle. The man had a signature, and if that symbol is literally peace, well, more power to him. We talked a lot about land speed records in our first episode with the Motorsports Hall of Fame, but I held back on my favorite story since it didn't actually occur in Florida. Gary leads me over to a sleek blue car with a very, very small windshield, maybe the size of a smartphone. It is beautiful, but its story is even better. Yeah, this was uh, driven by Mickey Thompson, uh, 1960. Uh, four engines, four transmissions, one for each wheel. Um, went 406 miles an hour out on the salt flats. He did not set an official record because at the salt flats you got to go down and do, go back. So you have to actually make two runs and then they take the average. He wasn't able to make the second run back, so uh, he didn't get an official record. That must have really drove him nuts. <laughs> yeah. Well, he and his son were working on, this is Challenger 1. Yeah. He and his son were working on Challenger 2. And Challenger 2 sat in the garage for 40-something years. And finally his son decided, yeah, I'm going to set Dad's record. Dad wants a record. Dad wanted a record. So he fixed up Challenger 2 and went 448 miles an hour as an official record in no 2019. Kidding. Oh, yeah. that's awesome. What, that recent, 2019? Yeah, 2019. It's, it's since been broken. Um, but that was the land speed record. That was the land speed record in, okay. in the other car. Wow. Um, his son did that at the age of 70. And <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Wow. And he's talking about wanting to do it again, but his wife wants him to retire. Yeah, calm down. <laughs> I love that story so much. This museum is so dense with history that you can't unpack all of it in two podcast episodes. There's motorcycles, boats, airplanes hanging from the ceiling. Countless faces are plastered on the walls of people that are members of the Hall of Fame. Some are familiar and others are not. In the back room of the museum, a crew of men was tirelessly restoring a beautiful old car. Someone had spray painted the vehicle years ago, turning the simple white coat into a cheap glittery crust. The museum was testing to see if this crew could restore the car to its original look. They were very friendly and discussed the products they used, how hard it was, and other work they had done in restoration. Museums are living things, and their employees are always looking to expand their collections, to bring something new, something exciting to add to the education they are committed to providing. I just love that when you go to a museum, You can do this amazing thing where you recontextualize the place around it. 
you learn so much about where you are that when you go back and return to that place, you have that history to color the places you're going. When you are in Lettuce Lake, you can think about the cypress farming. When you're in Daytona, you can think about those early racers on the beach. And when you go to Honeymoon Island on the west coast of Florida, for me, all I could think about was the newlyweds. Honeymoon Island is the sister island of Caladesi Island, which we visited for the three-year anniversary episode. We spent a lot of time discussing Caladesi with Dr. Beach, but its sister island has its own unique story. Honeymoon Island State Park is a classic Florida park with nearly 400 acres of preserved land, but 2,400 acres of underwater preserved land. It also has been one of, if not the most visited park in Florida for years. It's not hard to see why. There are over four miles of beach right on the Gulf, totally gorgeous and welcoming. And it feels kind of separated from everything else. There's not a big city nearby. Dunedin is a couple miles down the road and it's across a big causeway. Within the park is a museum set on high posts. Once you scale the structure by ramp or by stairs, within is a pretty classic Florida State Park Museum. You've been to one of these museums. I know you know exactly what I mean. Close your eyes, picture a standard, beautiful Florida nature museum. There's animal art on the wall, there's descriptions of how tides work, and there is a statue that is in every single Florida museum. It shows baby turtles crawling out of their nest. You've seen it. I know you've seen it. I know you know exactly what I'm talking about. Well, there is one inside of the Honeymoon Island State Park Museum. It's a wonderful spot. Gives you everything you need to learn the kind of things you're going to see in Florida nature. But along the walls, in small glass cases, are old magazines and photographs detailing something very, very unusual. This place is called Honeymoon Island for a reason. The island was originally connected to Caladesi Island and was called Hog Island after the plethora of hogs living here. Years after the island was cleaved in two by a hurricane in 1921, the northern island was purchased by a man named Clinton Washburn. It was 1939, and with the purchase of the island, Washburn saw a huge business opportunity. He concocted a pretty nifty scheme. Sell this place as the perfect honeymoon getaway and attract newlyweds to your shores. Washburn was able to sell the story to Life Magazine, who ran that Honeymoon Isle was just waiting for happily married folks to spend their first vacation together. With the help of Life Magazine and the Clearwater Lions Club, a contest was run to give a free getaway to Honeymoon Island. It instantly attracted attention. Washburn constructed cottages for the newlyweds. Pictures indicate that they were a little rustic, a little tropical, with palm fronds and hammocks. The promo was a success, and when the newlyweds arrived, Life Magazine did as well. They took pictures of the characters having a wonderful holiday. Some of them, you can bet, uh, let's say are staged. Inside the Honeymoon Island Museum today, there are countless pictures from the promo, and I've got to say, they are just incredible. One photo shows a couple in bathing suits standing under a birdcage hanging outside their shack. The caption reads, quote, The Wilbur Mansburgers of Moments, Illinois, near Chicago, called their honeymoon shack Lovey and Dovey. To emphasize their attitude, they brought along a cage of lovebirds, end quote. Other shots feature couples lounging outside their shack, detail shots of the shack themselves, and, of course, a shot of a couple cuddling in a hammock. 
In the back corner of the museum, there is a facade of a love shack with a false door and palm thatching. On the wall, there was a display of photographs that really stood out to me. Apparently, one of the things that the folks from Life Magazine and Clinton Washburn wanted to share about the island was that perhaps it was a great place to, I don't know, have their first fight? So one photo is of a couple fighting, the woman wielding a frying pan and the man apparently dodging a swipe. The caption reads that the husband, quote, got too curious about the meal his bride was cooking, end quote. Another image shows a man leaving one of the love shacks, his wife gently kicking him in the rear. It is hilariously posed. It's straight out of a sitcom. The caption reads, quote, Out of seventh heaven into marital purgatory trips Leo Tepfer of Brooklyn with the aid of a well-aimed boot by his wife, end quote. And the best picture, and I mean the best picture, is of a man crammed in is of a man crammed into a literal doghouse that says Fido on it with a chain around his neck. <laughs> he's, <just laughs> he's sitting in this doghouse and he's just pouting. It's actually Wilbur Mansberger, the guy with the lovebirds from earlier. The expression on his face is unbelievable. It is so funny and bizarre and antiquated. I I can't even talk about it without laughing. It's so strange. And I just stood there in the museum cracking up. It's so funny and absurd. It's a great story. I mean, it's just the best. The shacks are gone now, but all I can think of is the extremely silly antiquated photos that have their own endearing charm to them I, I, I just love it the love shacks however did not sustain through the years unfortunately a defense contractor went on to use the island as a getaway for employees in the midst of the second world war apparently the same contractor used the island to test quote an amphibious vehicle end quote as the decades passed the cottages fell apart no newlyweds were headed to the shores one developer purchased the land in the 60s and tried to turn it into a much larger island. They literally wanted to pump in artificial land and make this island 10 times bigger than it already was. Honeymoon Island is not very big, and he wanted to turn it into an island of 16,000 residents. The dredging didn't work, and activists halted any further attempts to affect Honeymoon Island in such a way. In the mid-70s, the state government began purchasing parts of the island until, 40 years ago this December, Honeymoon Island opened as a state recreation area in 1981. The rest of my time on Honeymoon, I kept thinking about the newlyweds. My memory of the whole island is shaded by my delight at the photographs hanging within their visitor center. I used to think of this show as a sort of audio museum, each episode a little exhibit. But nothing truly compares to spending some time in a museum, exploring, roaming, marveling at the artifacts behind glass. I often find myself gawking at the strangest things, ropes, shoes, old tea kettles. At the Jupiter Inlet Lighthouse that I visited at the beginning of the summer for our lighthouse episode, they are doing an incredible job of grappling two narratives at once. And this is common for a lot of museums, but at Jupiter, they are both telling the story of the area around them but of the lighthouse as well. They're talking about Jupiter the city and Jupiter the lighthouse. 
One room takes the time to carefully describe how a lighthouse actually works and shares photographs of the lighthouse keepers through the years. The main museum details the entire history with artifacts dating back thousands of years, but in the tour I took of the lighthouse, there was a lot of discussion about how the museum was hoping to expand. New exhibits, new interactive ideas, new ways to tell the story. I tell you that to make it clear. I have not been to a museum in the last year where someone hasn't said to me that their museum is hoping to grow, to expand, to change, to adapt. Museums are living things. That's amazing. For example, Brad Bertelli from the Skunk Ape episode two weeks ago, he runs the Florida Keys History Discovery Center. In discussing his museum, he talked about how he came to his role in that job. Came together in a perfect storm, so to speak, and uh, this 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 museum was going to open and i was literally waiting on tables on thursday and on friday i was you know hired and basically said you know we have like 7500 square feet of blank blue walls here make a museum that's a dream that is a dream come true that sounds so amazing <laughs> it, was a, it was a it was a cool experience and it's you know i didn't have any experience in, in any museum experience but you know creating these exhibits it's really storytelling sure and storytelling i i do and um, it was, you know, trying to just tell interesting stories. And, and so I always kind of liken the museum as writing a really cool book, but being able to use props like artifacts and, and video right. and, and, you know, and models. And it's just a really kind of integrated, inter, you know, integrated um, interactive book. I love that visual that a museum is really just a walk through a story through a book that, in many ways, is still being written. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes. I'm so glad that you are here. If you're brand new to the show or if this is your first episode, welcome. There are some amazing stories waiting for you. If you're looking for a good place to jump in, you don't need to go all the way back to the beginning. I would recommend listening to the other episodes this season that are connected to this one or listening to another one of these short story episodes. I try to do a short story episode once a season because it's nice to just compile some of the stories I couldn't quite fit in. So we did an episode last year about footnotes and a lot of the footnotes that got left out of stories. And I love that one. You got to go check it out if you haven't already. Season 7 of Wait 5 Minutes is brought to you by A Trombo Creative. Turn your ideas and inspirations into a wearable reality. Go book your appointment at atrombocreative.com. And thank you again to A Trombo Creative for sponsoring this episode and season of Wait 5 Minutes. If you're looking for more Wait 5 Minutes, there is a website for you. Go to wfmpod.com for transcripts of current episodes, additional photographs related to the stories, and photos from my trips around the state. I'll be updating past transcripts from episodes as well, so you can go back and revisit your favorite previous episodes in new ways. Head to wfmpod.com for more. You can now pick up Wait 5 Minutes merchandise at Cast and Clay on Etsy. Cast and Clay is run by one of my best friends, Sophie Aparicio, who designed each of these stickers alongside the rest of their catalog. We've got a Drink More Water sticker using a photograph from our friend Lauren Nix, a Wait 5 Minutes sticker in the shape of Florida, and a sticker featuring the show subtitle about Florida by a Floridian in a vintage citrus crate style. 
Grab them individually or as a set of three at Cast and Clay on Etsy. Head to the link in the description to pick up your WFM merch now. If you did enjoy this episode, please consider leaving a five-star review. It helps the show become more visible and it means a lot to me. You can also find me and share the episodes on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WFMPod. If you want to send me a message, you can do so at WFMPod at gmail.com. And you can follow my personal account on Twitter at WFMNick. I look forward to hearing from you. I'd like to give a very special thank you to some of the guests I've had this season who have made a second appearance this week, Gary Chapels and Brad Bertelli. They were so wonderful to chat with. I couldn't have done my original episodes without them, and I couldn't have pulled this little story together without them as well. They were very generous with their time. Go check out the Motorsports Hall of Fame in Daytona and the Florida Keys History Discovery Center in the Florida Keys. I've included links to both of those museums in the episode description. Go check them out. Pay them a visit. Next week, I'll be telling you about an amazing baseball team, the Havana Sugar Kings, their past in Florida, and their future as well. Until then, I'm Nick D'Alessandro. Be good to yourself. Be good to others. If you are not vaccinated already, please look into doing so. We need you now. We need to keep each other safe. And please drink more water. Have a good week. See you next Monday.